All right, good morning, everybody, and welcome. We're glad you're here. So we're in the Song of Solomon, which is in the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. We are dealing with some mature content, so I'll give you just a heads up that if you have young ones either watching live stream or in the sanctuary, just we will have some mature content, so that's a heads up. Song of Solomon will be completed today. We'll do the last two, what's called idols, idols number six and seven. The book is made up of seven idols. They are seven poems or uh, parts of the play set in a romantic, pastoral kind of setting. We did the fifth idol on Wednesday night. We called it Time to Dance Again. We've watched this couple court. We've watched them have a marriage and a honeymoon. We've watched them move through a time of conflict. We've watched them on Wednesday night kiss and make up. And now there are many scholars that believe that we are moving through life. Uh, some believe that we're going to watch the couple as they grow old. But we're going to watch them through stages of marriage. We could say for decades, for a lifetime until, you know, death do us part. And there's a lot of insight in these last in this last section, idols number six and seven, which I would just encourage you, if you've never taken notes before, this would be a day to take notes. We're gonna have practical wisdom, and that's what we're calling the message, uh, principles, uh, wise principles for marriage. And uh, I'm gonna try to give you as much practical as I can. We're gonna get some definitions of love in the Song of Solomon. What is love? What does it look like? How is it lived out? There's going to be romantic parts in the uh, text about lovemaking and the like, and we've already experienced some of that, but we're also going to be talking about friendship and dating and leaving and cleaving. There's a lot here for us to take in. I will say, some of you are excited that this series is over today, and uh, I will just say, repent, uh, if that's you. No, I realize that as we have talked about these topics uh, it may not be something that you're used to at all. I was talking to a brother who's been in church for many decades. He's a seasoned believer, a doctorate in theology, and he said he's never heard the Song of Solomon preached on a Sunday morning ever in his whole church experience. And that doesn't bode well for where we are as a society and a church culture. I also realize that some of you are single, some of you are divorced, some of you have lost a spouse, some of you are on the, you know, looking toward the future of a marriage, and there's going to be stuff, I think, for all of us. There's going to be spiritual truth about Christ and his bride that we'll bring into it so we can all learn how to press in to our great husband or our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We're going to try to do it all, and we're going to try to do it all in about the next 45 minutes. So we have a lot ahead of us. Uh, I think there can be a share of hurt uh, as we've moved through this series. Uh, and that, that is understandable because there's a lot of brokenness when it comes to intimacy, to sex, to marriage. A lot of us did it the wrong way. A lot of us never were loved the way that we see in this book. And I said on Wednesday night, if that's you, I'm sorry. I don't think that that's what God wanted for you. But I know God can take the broken pieces wherever you find yourself, whether you've had a wonderful journey or a treacherous one or somewhere in between. And remember that God's word is divine surgery. 
hard truth is still profitable truth. Some of this may be hard for you to hear, but if it moves you more towards maturity in your faith and healing, it's a good thing. Amen? So hard truth is still good. And God does divine surgery on us, and he is always gracious with us. Let's just pray one more time. Father, for all the precious souls that have uh, ventured into this place to worship you in spirit and in truth, I pray that you would honor them because they've decided to honor you. And I pray that you have been honored in the way that we've taught the word and in the way that we respond as a congregation. We want to have ears to hear what you would say to your church in this hour. This is a strange hour, Lord. Our world has tipped off the deep end in these areas of sexuality and marriage. And it's hard to keep track of everything that's going on around the world and in our country, Lord. It seems like we've lost every sense of normalcy and biblical wisdom. But oh, how we need a biblical worldview, Lord. And it's got to start with your people. If it doesn't start with us, it's not gonna happen. And so would you help us, Lord, to have sensitive, teachable hearts? Would you help us to teach the word accurately, cut it straight, uh, to find the grace and the love that's in it as well? And I pray that you do a mighty work this morning for your glory in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may have heard that there's a, another attempt on a national level to redefine marriage. Uh, basically, this is an ali ali oxen free. Marriage can mean whatever you want it to mean, whether it's, you know, it's gonna end up being group marriage, polygamy, same-sex marriage, you name it. It's going to be uh, defined as marriage in our country. That's where we are today. And some of you may say, well, why does it really matter? Can't we just have a live and let live attitude after all? People are autonomous. They have free will. They're going to do what they're going to do. And while that is true, what we need to understand is that marriage is a spiritual institution and it needs spiritual and biblical guidance and wisdom to work. You cannot be blessed if you don't do it God's way. Now, it's possible to get things right and adjust your life if you started off the wrong way, or even if right now you would say it's been a bumpy road. There's time to change direction. There's always time to, for a new beginning in Jesus, for your marriage, for your personal life, whatever it may be. But we can see that marriage is under attack. The very definition is under attack. What do we do? Well, we've got to go to the Word of God. We've got to see what the Word of God says about these things. We're picking up the sixth idol in 7.11. So we have the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 11, and it opens this way. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. She's speaking. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early, Song 7.12, and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened, whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. It's kind of springtime, and their love is seemingly always in springtime. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance over our or behind our doors. All are all choice fruits, both new and old, new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. I can't help but think of the song, I'm saving all my love for you. And I can't hit the note. Otherwise, I would try, but it might clear out half the building if I tried, so I won't go. But 
Here, as we get deeper principles about marriage and what it's supposed to, be, to look like, we did a marriage conference recently and we talked about the art of dating or learning to date again. Would you look at verse 11? Come, my beloved, let's go. Let's go into the country. Let's spend the night at the five seasons or whatever it's called, <laughs> right? Let, let's get a nice hotel room. Let, let's get out of Dodge. Let's go and spend time together. No matter how many years you've been married, there is a, always a place for continuing to date and maybe even renewing your dating life. Now, seasons and times change throughout life, and we've acknowledged that it seems like when you're young, you have the freedom to date, but you don't have the money. So uh, you eat, you know, maybe mac and cheese out of a box, and if you were gonna stay in a hotel, it might be a Motel 6, and you might have to share the bed with a roach or two, and that doesn't sound very romantic. And then in midlife, we have children. So to get away for a weekend might really be complicated. We have to get a babysitter. We got to, you know, figure out all the logistics. And then when you get older, you're too tired to go out of town anyway. <laughs> Just kidding. You have a little bit more freedom. You have the money. But you might not have the same motivation because we can all get in routines and, and that kind of thing. So here you can see that there's some, some initiative and we don't know, you know how many years they've been married at this point when this is spoken, but it's, it's an exhortation, come my beloved, let's go. Let's go out into the country, let's spend the night, we might say in a hotel, let's go you know, to the beach or to the mountains, you know, both are an hour away here in Southern California. Let's rise early and go to the vineyards, let's see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened. They're talking about checking out, you know, the fruit and so forth. The reference to the mandrakes here, scholars say was an ancient aphrodisiac. In fact, in Genesis 30, it's mentioned in verses 14 through 16. And it has the idea of something that would be taken or partaken of to enhance or motivate lovemaking. And that's what a lot of believe, a lot of scholars believe the reference to mandrakes is all about. In fact, she says, uh, I've saved all my love for you. And she talks about the closed door where they will be alone and they will share their love. Notice in verse 13, it's both new and old. So let's just assume for a moment that this couple's been married for a while. You know, if you've been married for a while, you have old habits or old things that you know about each other. And those can be wonderful things. They, they can be personality things. They can be ways that you communicate without a word. They can be funny little sayings that you have within marriage, nicknames, that kind of thing. My wife and I have been married long enough to pretty much know what one another's thinking. Uh, we don't have to necessarily talk in the car. In fact, it's preferable if we don't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but we don't have to say a lot because we know each other and we love each other. And so we don't feel compelled always to fill in the gaps, you know. But here's the truth of the matter. There's also the new. And so some of the old is there, but the new is there as well. Notice, she wants to share both new and old. And so this might have the idea that she's creative in her, in her intimacy. She wants to be with him. She wants to share the new and the old. She wants to keep things fresh and exciting, you might say. C.S. Lewis lost his wife, and he was one of the great apologists uh, of the church. 
And he said one of the things that he missed was the beauty of ordinariness. And he said just kind of knowing that my spouse was there and the, what we would call the ordinary moments of life were the things that he missed the most about her. And so that was a way that he expressed his grief. So remember that marriage is not just about those moments when we have exciting intimacy. It's also about the other forms of intimacy, the layers of intimacy of friendship and security and the beauty of knowing that someone's known you for a long time and you are safe and vulnerable and it's okay. And so we move from this idea of you could call dating, keeping their love alive through dating, to family. 8.1 says, oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. Now, here the scene shifts to them visiting their family home. And you can notice the mention of her mother who trained her. And visits to family are wonderful. Uh, the Bible teaches that when you get married, you have a new family. You leave your first family, mom and dad, and you cleave to your spouse. But that doesn't mean that your family's not still part of your life. You should visit and visit regularly, but just make the visits short. <laughs> that was a little attempt at humor. You know, come on, guys. You guys awake? Anyway, short visits are good. <laughs> and so you're saying, well, what does this mean? She's talking about like if he was like her brother and nursed at his, her mother's breast. What does this mean? And scholars say that in the ancient world, in the Semitic culture, it was taboo, wrong to show public affection to your spouse. Uh, I even heard that if you go to Israel today and you walk the streets of Jerusalem, public shows of affection to your spouse are a no-no. And someone might even slap your hand away or say, hey, you're not to be doing that. But if it was your sibling or brother, it would be okay to put your arm around them. You're like, what? Well, it's true. And so she says, I wish you were my brother so I could show affection to you in my mother's house. That's how much she wants to be near him and hold his hand and kiss him. She can't wait to touch him. There's a story about an old couple and they're driving. They've been married 60 years. And as they drive down the road, the wife's pushed all the way against the driver's side door. And finally she says, you know, exasperated, what happened to us? Why is there so much distance between us? And he says, I haven't moved. And sometimes over the years, there, there was a, a book written by Dennis Rainey, the former uh, founder and president of Family Life Ministries. He wrote a book, Gold Medallion Winner, called Staying Close. And the premise of the book is that marriages, because of our humanity, naturally move over time to isolation. We are excited about each other at first. We are intimate. We always want to touch and kiss. But as time goes by, Rainey argued, the natural human tendency is to move towards isolation. And his solution in the book was you have to be intentional about keeping romance and intimacy alive. 
I mentioned in a previous message that some experts say you should kiss 15 to 20 seconds. Keep the kiss going. Count if you have to. Three. I, I heard it stirred up some really healthy conversation in one of our small groups. You know, they were counting, apparently. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, the point is this. You have to keep romance alive because you can begin to take one another for granted. And touching and hugging and kissing are all very, very important things. And so she says, I wish that I could call you my brother so that we could touch. It's, it's a really healthy sign when a couple is still older and they still touch. My wife shared a funny video and uh, we couldn't really play it for the congregation because there are a couple uh, parts about it that we probably wouldn't want to share in front of the church. But it was this old couple and they couldn't attend this wedding so they were setting, sending wedding blessings via video to this young couple. And they were talking about principles that they wanted to share from 70 years of marriage. And they talked about, she said, have a clean house and <laughs> make sure you pick up after me. And he said, you always yell at me when I don't pick up. And they, it's kind of has some funny moments. And at the end, she kisses him for about a good 10 seconds. And she starts laughing. And she, and she stops laughing and she says, I haven't kissed him like that in 25 years. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> love is affectionate. Love is unashamedly affectionate. And some of us came from a generation where our parents didn't even know how to say I love you. And, and maybe, you know, uh, the men in the family, it was a strong handshake and that was about it. And maybe your dad never told you that he loved you. And, you know, I remember grandpa, uh, I know he loved us, but he, he, it wasn't really something that he said. That generation just thought if you supplied for your family what they needed financially, then, you know, they, they knew, they, they know. But touch is an important thing. And in fact, she goes so far as to use very intimate language in 8.3 that she wishes that they could be intimate. Maybe she's thinking about, she had dreams about her household, uh, her home when she grew up and being intimate with her husband there. I'll, I'll leave that to you. But she ends the sixth idyll with these words of exhortation. I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love, or love, my is added by the translators, until she pleases, or until the time is right. If you're a young person, I really want you to write this down. True love waits. True love waits. Don't arouse those feelings before the time is right. You must guard yourself, guard your virginity, until the time is right. True love will wait. A wise man once said, wise people make short-term sacrifices for long-term gains. Wise people make short-term sacrifices for long-term gains. I had a brother who said to me, he moved to the Pacific Northwest, Pastor Michael, it amazes me that people for five minutes of pleasure will give away their marriage, their family, their ministry, you name it. Because temptation is strong. 
And when those feelings get aroused, especially when you're younger and your hormones are on overdrive, it can be very difficult to rein them back in. But you want to save yourself for your future spouse if indeed you're going to be married. Some of you have the gift of singleness. But a couple principles up front. And then notice what happens. As they're coming, uh, some believe this is a grandma or an aunt or a close family friend speaking. It says these words. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Beneath the apple tree, some believe that's the, the tree of love or the family tree. We'll come back to that. I awakened you. There your mother, notice the mention of her mother again, was in labor with you or brought you forth. There she was in labor and gave you birth. Now, the images of them arriving from the desert, this time the focus is not on him, the bridegroom, but on her. And the question is asked, who is this? It's almost like this. If you have family, let's say in another state, and let's say you haven't seen a niece or a nephew in 15 years. They were a little kid when you remember them. And now you have a family gathering and they're all grown up and you're like, who is that? Now, you know who it is. They've grown up, but you haven't seen them for a long time. So you're comparing them to what they were when you last saw them and to what they are now. And here's the point. This woman has been so transformed by the bridegroom or her husband that it's hard to tell who she is. She's changed, but in a good way. And if you're taking notes, this is another thing. Love is transformational. When we marry the right person, and we could take it to a spiritual plane now, we are married to our great bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who's transforming us from one degree of glory to another, conforming us more and more into the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. This is the point of that marriage. It will become evident who you're married to will influence you so that hopefully people in a good sense will say, who is that? Wow. If you interviewed people who knew me when I was 18 and saw me today preaching, they would say, who is that? Because the Michael Lance as a senior in high school is a much different man than the Michael Lance at an age which will remain undisclosed <laughs> at this very moment. But here's the point. The change has been a positive. I want to submit my bride to my Lord one day and hopefully prayerfully have her be the better for her marriage to me because Christ has been working in my life. Galatians 4.19 says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. She's been changed and something that you can see in verse 5 is that when they approach, the question is asked, and her posture is she is leaning on her beloved. Some definitions of love. Love is leaning. When we study the book of Exodus in chapter 17, the Israelites fought the Amalekites, and Moses was up on the mountain praying, and they won the victory, and they built an altar, Moses did, and called it, the Lord is my banner. And some Hebrew experts believe banner can be described in this way. The Lord is the one I lean on. The Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, used to lean on Jesus' chest. We're told that in John 13, verse 23. 
He leaned on Jesus' chest. That was the love and the comfort that the church, the bride, had with the bridegroom on the night before he would die and demonstrate his love for his bride on that cross. Amen? And so there's a comfort here. There's a leaning love. And there's a sense in which in the body of Christ, though it's not the intimate parts in terms of romance, there's other things that we can do for one another in the body, no matter if you're married, widowed, single, etc. And here's what it is. We can be a shoulder for the church. We are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And I want to ask you, are you leanable? Or are you a bit prickly? Is there a comfort level that if someone attempted to lean, you would be there? Offering a shoulder or a chest, as it were. Love is leanable. And the Lord, of course, is the one that I ultimately lean on, but I want my bride to be able to lean on me. And one time I asked Brenda, why do you cry? And as a man, I don't always understand a woman's tears. Can I get a witness? Gentlemen, any of you brave enough to say amen? All right. So I finally decided to ask after 19 years of marriage. <laughs> it took me a little while. I, think, I don't think it was 19 years. But I, I asked her, why do you cry? And she told me to purge. I hit a little white golf ball to purge. Why, I, it just adds more terror to my life. I don't know why I do it. But anyway, never mind. Or I would hit a little blue racquetball. She cries. And so I said, when you cry, what do you want me to do? Because I often feel myself at quite a loss or I'm trying to figure out who I'm supposed to kill, that kind of thing. <laughs> who did it? Where are they? And she told me, all I want you to do is listen to me and be a shoulder for me. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to offer 10 suggestions. You just, I just want you to be there for me. And that's something I'm trying to learn. I don't have to always offer 17 Bible verses or, you know, send out a hit squad to a certain address, <laughs> guys in dark suits. Love is leanable. Can I ask you how you're doing with that? How are we doing with that as a church? Jesus said, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love each other. How would the world know that we love each other unless there's some way to tell that we actually do love each other? And here's the good news. I watch you guys do it. I watch the hugs. I watch the greetings. I watch the excitement to be here. I watch the meals that come to the hurting. I watch the prayers and the texts and the words of encouragement. And you do that as a body. And it's a beautiful testimony of the love of Christ moving through you as a community. That's wonderful. And that is a sign that we belong to our Lord. Here's another thing. Love is nurturing. Notice there's a mention of mom. Mom was in labor with you. The Hebrew word can mean that's where mom made a pledge or brought you forth you look at the Hebrew, it can't have the idea of a pledge when she gave you birth. Some scholars believe that at some point as mom and daughter spent time together, 
Mom nurtured daughter in the ways of love. In fact, she went beyond the birds and the bees to talk about how a woman would please a man in a marriage setting. Of course, appropriate. So some years ago, we were doing a program called Raising a Modern Day Night, and uh, the boys were younger, and I had a dad in the congregation say to me, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to biblically have the talk with my son, who at, time, at that time was 12 or 13 years old. And I had heard some advice from James Dobson that you kind of give uh, information away as is appropriate to the age. And so we both agreed that we would use the book of Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve, and we would give a certain amount to the level that the kid of their, their age or appropriateness. I think you guys get the idea. And then we would try to give more away as time went on. My point is this, that can you see the close family connection here? The family's involved. In fact, the mom, the implications are that the mom has shared before her wedding night exactly how she is to please a man. And some, some might say, oh, that, that's strange. I would never want to talk to my mom and dad about such matters. But do you know where the culture goes to get wisdom on such matters? High school friends in the cafeteria or college dorm rooms. Given by fools, frankly, who don't know a thing about what it means to be committed to a person in the context of marriage. True? So let's say we have an imaginary couple and they come together and they say, you know what? Let's give it a shot. Let's you and I live together. Do you think that they're going to go meet with their Christian parents and say, hey, what do you think if we give it a spin for six months and See, in today's culture, it's almost unheard of that the family would have a say in a decision like that, but not here. In the biblical narrative, the family is very involved, and mom has prepared the daughter for this moment and given some detail that might be, in this setting uncomfortable for us to talk about. But nonetheless, she's done it because she wanted her to hear it from the right source with the right wisdom. And I think that that needs to be recaptured. And we're, there's some conversations that we all need to have. And we all have work to do. I have work to do in this area. But the truth of the matter is, still, it is before us. Love is nurturing. And we move to verse 5. Some of the things about love. She says, put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. In the ancient world, they had something called a seal. And in Hebrew culture, it was your family insignia. And it was often captured in a signet ring with your family marking on it. And sometimes when a contract was made or a big moment in life happened, or you even wanted to mark things that you owned, like if there were going to be cargo on a ship, you would take your signet ring and impress it into wax and you would leave your mark on it. And she said, put your signet, your seal over or in my heart and on your arm, or we might say on your finger. Never forget that I am your first love in your heart and remind it on your finger. Today we have a wedding ring. I have a friend who lives out of state. He will never take his wedding ring off, ever. He told me, this never leaves my finger. And do you know why? 
because it is the signet of his love for his bride connected to the sealing of his heart for her. He says, it, it's that, it means that much to me that I won't take it off. And they've been married for many decades now. And this is what she's saying. Basically, I want me to be that seal on your heart. Love is leaning or leanable. Love is nurturing and love is strong. It's sealed. The Bible says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. Ephesians 1.13 says we're sealed the moment we believe. And Ephesians 4.30 says we're sealed to the day of consummation or redemption. And the seal that we have in our lives that means we belong to Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, is the Holy Spirit sealing us for the day of redemption. His spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we belong to him and one day he will finish what he started in us. Amen? And the modern word for engagement ring is actually the word that means pledge in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, the pledging of the promise of God for that future marriage supper of the Lamb. And she says, oh, that you would seal my love on your heart, in your heart, that I would be the only one for you and you for me. Because love, verse six, middle, is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as shield. That could be the grave. Some believe it's hell. Love is as strong as death and hell. And death and hell, or the grave and hell, don't let anybody go. And it speaks of the permanence of love. Things will dissipate. Spiritual gifts will one day disappear. But love will last forever because God is love. Amen? And we will always know that love. Nothing will ever put that love out. Not death or the grave. In fact, that love has conquered the grave. Amen? Death will die in the resurrection. And love is that strong, as powerful as the grave, as powerful as hell. One pastor was saying that, can you imagine with this in mind that, you know, a, a bride and a groom are up before a pastor at a wedding and he says to the girl, all right, will you have him in sickness and health, uh, forsaking all others till death do you part? And she responds, like hell. <laughs> and he said, you know, that's biblical. We just read it. Let it sink in just for a moment. You'll get it. It was an attempt at weak humor as well. But anyway, never mind. His love won't let you go. I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say the Lord is my helper. That's Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. So the beauty of the definitions of love are here. It's as strong as Sheol, and it flashes with the flashes of fire. This is the only time the, the Lord is named in the song, verse 6, end of the verse. And it's an abbreviated form of Yah or Yahweh. And love is like the very flame of the Lord. Verse 7 rounds out the picture when it says, many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. Love, true love, biblical love, is compared to the fire of God. Imagine the burning bush, the uh, glory on top of Mount Sinai. Normally, 
If there's a fire, enough water will what? Put the fire out. But not in, with this love. The flame wins over the water. Nothing can ever quench that love because it is kept by the fire of God. Amen? And this is something that we need to pray. Lord, may your holy fire, the power of your Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, keep that love strong towards my spouse or perhaps in another context towards someone that you've called me to love. Love is bigger than the two of us. Love is leanable, nurturing. It reminds us of a wedding ring. It's permanent. And we don't want to let the fire ever go out. It's a love that says I'm spoken for. I've made a pledge. And somewhere along the line, the language seems to indicate that mom made a pledge with her daughter. Maybe it was a promise ring. And she said something like this, honey, one day the right man will come into your life. But until that day comes, let's make a commitment to your purity. And I will teach you to be ready when that time is right. That's beautiful, don't you think? And that's what we have before us. Jesus put it this way, what God has joined together, let no one ever separate. The book of Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. If a man, uh, look, look at the middle of verse 7, a little bit more about love. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly destroyed. You cannot put a price tag on love, brethren. You can't buy it. It's not cheap. But when it's there, it's more valuable than riches because you know what? Riches will one day perish. You're going to leave your stuff to somebody else. But your love, you're going to take with you. And your love, you're going to leave behind you. Your gold, your silver in that day won't matter. In fact, sometimes it causes more complications than anything else. But your love, you will carry forward. B.B. Warfield was one of the great minds in the history of the church. Professor of theology at Princeton University from 1887 to 1921. He was well known for his writings on the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. But what is not well known about Warfield was how he cared for his wife. At the age of 25, Warfield married. He and his wife Annie went to Germany for their honeymoon. There Annie was struck by lightning and was paralyzed for life. Warfield spent almost 40 years caring for her. In fact, all those years, he never left his home for more than a few hours at a time. O'Donnell, a commentator, says, that is touching. I get choked up every time I think about it. That's wearing your wedding ring always. But what was he thinking? What, what was this great mind thinking? Why would he do that? Why would he give 40 years of his life to a woman who couldn't kiss him, couldn't make love to him, couldn't have children to carry, or bear him children to carry on his prestigious name? Why would anyone ever love that way? And O'Donnell says it's captured in one word. He was a man of honor. And he had made a vow to love his bride until death do they part, and he did. And he was a brilliant theologian who produced incredible uh, doctrine for the church, and yet something unknown about him is that he loved her through the years in a sacrificial way. 
All right, we're going to transition to the brothers. There in verse 8. At first, this may shock you, but I'll explain. They say, we have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister? If she is a wall, we shall build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we shall barricade her with planks of cedar. Now, what in the world is going on here, God's people ask? I have no idea, so let's just move on to the next verse. No. <laughs> so the brothers are talking about a time when she was before puberty leading up to the proposal. And the brothers had a job. Remember early in the book, we saw the brothers made her work in the vineyard. But the brothers had a job and their older brothers, they call her little sister. And older brothers have a role. And what's their role? To threaten any person who approaches. <laughs> and so they say in the years that she was too young to marry, well, we, we wanted to make sure she was protected. If she was a wall, which means a virgin, we shall build on her battlement of silver. Some believe a generous, generous dowry or a recognition of her virginity. But if she is a door, can you imagine what that means? If she's opened herself prematurely to men in an unhealthy way, they said we will barricade her with planks of cedar. <laughs> we'll put her behind our door and make sure that no one gets to her. Once again, you can see very familial stuff here. Love is protecting, if you're taking notes. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love always protects. We want the best for those that we love. And so she says, I was indeed a wall, verse 10, and my breasts were like towers. It could mean that she did develop or it could mean she was out of reach of those men who came calling out of order. Then I became in his eyes, probably the eyes of Solomon here, the bridegroom, as one who finds peace. His name actually means peaceful. She waited. She was a wall, verse 10. She kept herself for him. And then Solomon saw her. They married. They were intimate. And she found grace or peace in him, whose name means peaceful. Let me just say this. If you wait and you're intimate on your wedding night, you will have a great peace and freedom in doing things God's way. Believe me when I tell you, there are not people lining up to talk to pastors in pastor's offices, offices about, oh, I so regret waiting until my wedding night. I ain't talked to one of them. But I'll tell you who I've talked to over the years, people full of regret, people full of guilt. And sometimes I've had couples in and I've directly said to them, um, are you sleeping together? And you know right away what the answer is gonna be. Because if they do the bulletin shuffle, everybody know what the bulletin shuffle is? Kind of a nervous back and forth looking at the bulletin. <laughs> that means they have a confession to make. I heard a pastor say he would not marry people who were engaged in premarital sex. And you know what we do? 
We will tell a couple, okay, you're living together and you're being intimate and you're not married. Separate for six months. And then when you come back on your day, day of your wedding, you can make a recommitment to virginity and then you can consummate your marriage again when you do things the right way. And then comes the test of whether one wants to live a biblical life. Because here's what we normally hear. Practically speaking, that doesn't make a lot of sense for us because, and then you're going to get the story. We're sharing a place and financially and dot, 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 which is just more justification, right? Let's be honest. I said that this is going to be some hard truth. But would to God that people would tell us the truth. Amen? Some of us reflect back and say, I wish someone would have told me and been straight with me. I, made it, I may have made an adjustment to be in line with the Lord. I will tell you that the mention of battlement here in verse 9 implies that it's going to be a battle. You're going to need the full armor of God, family, peers, church community, knowledge of God's word, commitment, discipline, accountability, clear boundaries, have a future goal in mind, your future spouse in mind to stay pure. But you can do it because you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Don't believe for a moment the world's Message. No, we just got to make sure that we give them what they need for safe sex. Uh uh. Not true. And for those of us who have done things out of order, we found the beauty of God's grace if we've repented and, and turned to Him. And some of us have found the reality of His loving discipline. Amen? You don't want to say amen to that one, huh? <laughs> Here's why. When the Lord loves somebody, he will discipline us if we get off track. Why? Because he loves us. And so sometimes he'll let us swim in the consequences of bad decisions. The point is, character does matter. We wind down. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. Some believe that means Lord of wealth. Might tie to the previous thought about riches. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. My very own vineyard uh, 12 is at my disposal. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon. 200 are for those who take care of its fruit. Do you remember at the beginning of the book, we gave a view about how Solomon met the Shulamite bride? Do you know where he first saw her? At a vineyard that her brothers took care of. That's the providence of God. Now, some people say, does God really have one person in somewhere in the world that will be my true love? I don't know. I don't know for sure. I can't go to a Bible verse and say to you, oh, this says, just wait, because the person will show up at your door with candy and flowers, ding dong, and you'll just know. I don't know. I think God steers a moving vehicle, if you will. But the providence of God is here because Solomon showed up at one of these vineyards that he had hired out the caretaking of to her brothers and that's where he saw her. And some of you are saying, where are all the good men? Amen? Any of the ladies? Maybe you thought this. Are there any good men out there and where does one find them? Not at the club. Mm -mm. 
maybe on the sites. <laughs> I know that's become the modern way of meeting people now, and I'm not going to bag on that. But perhaps at the vineyard, you say, what does that mean? I need specifics. I'm trying to meet a man. All right. In the course of everyday commitment to the Lord, you may be surprised that a person might just show up. I don't, I can't tell you I've cornered the market on wisdom on meeting someone, but if you want to meet someone solid, make sure you're in places that are solid. Thank you, Brother Bert. Verse 13. Oh, you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. And then the book ends with these words. Hurry, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Basically, she says to him, hurry home. Because when you get home from work, there's going to be cinnamon behind the door. And all God's men said, yeah. And she calls him a young stag, which gives me even more evidence that Italian stallion could be biblical. <laughs> She's shaking her head. Brothers, if your wife calls you or texts you and says, hurry home because there's going to be cinnamon behind the door, I guarantee you that brother ain't playing softball that night. He ain't going bowling with his buddies. In fact, he may clock out early, feign sickness, <laughs> which is breaking another commandment, but, you know, that's not the discussion for this morning. And he will be there. If you say, I'm putting on a nice negligee, There'll be a lit candle, and when you get home, romance will be behind the door. He will show up. Maybe move faster than you've ever seen him move before. I bring it up because that's the way the book ends. Hurry home, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag. Let's go to the mountain of spices. Which means you got to keep your love life spicy over the years, right? continue. The book ends with the idea of love continuing. Now I'm going to make a, a spiritual angle point and we're done. Would you turn all the way to the last chapter of the Bible? Worship team, if you can hear my voice, we're going to wrap up. The Bible ends with a love is expectant theme. If you're taking notes, the final love is expectant. It says in Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Titus 2, 13 says, we're looking for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope. And the book of Revelation ends with these words. 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And the church responds, amen. Maranatha, hurry back, come, Lord Jesus. And then it ends, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all or you all. Amen. Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you for this time in the Song of Solomon. Thank you for those who have taken in the book. 
considered what the Word of God says, had a soft and pliable heart and open ears. The room is represented with different stages of life, different situations, Lord. There's a spiritual application. There's a friendship body of Christ application. But the main context has been marriage. And Lord, I know that perhaps this has opened up some wounds that only you can heal, and I pray you would heal them. Some good conversations, Lord, I pray that would move us in your direction. There may be a need for forgiveness. Redirect on the way that we've been doing things, Lord. That's really what repentance is all about. It's aligning my life, redirecting my life with your word, your will. I pray that you would sprinkle your grace upon this precious church because I know they've had open hearts to hear what you have to say and I think they desire, I know they desire to walk with you. Help us amend our ways, Lord, if there's something off. And if we find ourselves in a place of hurt, pour your, the beauty of your salve, your grace over those wounds. Help us forgive, move forward, let go of resentment. Help us, Lord. We want to be your people walking in your love, your forgiveness, your grace. Moving forward, not staying stuck. Would you keep your head and heart bowed just for a moment? None of this is going to work unless you know the one who is love. And if you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this would be a time to ask him in. Repent of your sins. Say, Lord, I believe that you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I'm sorry for my sin. There may be someone here who's been wayward in their marriage and you need to find that way back. And first it's repentance to the Lord and it's making amends and building trust again. Lord, you know every heart. I just pray that you'd be ministering to your people. Speak. Speak to us, Lord, about how you'd have us to respond. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.